Well, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be back with you this morning. Um, for those of you who are regular here, uh, you're probably more regular than me. <laughs> it's uh, been over a month or just about a month since I've been here uh, having the privilege to teach God's Word. And so uh, apologies for my absences, uh, but uh, as I have been catching up afterwards, it's been great to hear God's Word uh, going out in these weeks. And so I pray you've been uplifted and challenged as God has continued to speak uh, in these weeks. And this morning we're returning to Nehemiah, picking up in chapter 9, where Dave Dunlop from Windsor Baptist left us off in chapter 8 last week. And how helpful that was as a reminder from God's Word about the importance and necessity of God's Word for those who follow Jesus. And and so if you missed uh, God's message to us last week, then I'd encourage you to catch up on the podcast or on the YouTube channel. Um, And and last week from chapter 8, we we were shown that the people of Jerusalem gathering to hear God's Word. Uh, And just as by way of context and to catch us all up, the people are in Jerusalem These are the people who had been in exile under the Babylonians, yet permitted to return to their city and to their land by the Persian king Cyrus and then followed by Artaxerxes. And the record of Nehemiah shows this group of exiles returning in the middle of the 5th century BC. And they have a particular focus. Certainly the first half of the book has a particular focus on the rebuilding and restoring of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. But, But that, as we have said many times, is not all that they're focused on it is certainly not all that god is doing among them and so the walls are completed in chapter six in a very impressive 52 days they complete the rebuilding of the walls but that's not the point of the book not the main point of the book because that is only the first half of the book and the second half of that book the next six chapters shows us that the walls have been rebuilt and now we're being invited to see the continuation of the inner transformation that god is bringing to his people Uh, And so we see him rebuilding and restoring not just the physical walls, but the relationship with his people. And so in chapter 7, we see them prioritizing worship. We see them installing godly leadership. We see them being attentive to God's voice and God's leading. In chapter 8, last week, we saw them rediscover the beauty and the wonder of God's word, the law. And so we saw their hunger for God's word. We saw the right attitude towards God's word, their commitment to engage with it, and their willingness to respond to God's word. And and we saw last week that exposure to God's word in chapter 8, it it brought about a mixed response. We saw that at times the people mourned and grieved what they heard because they realized in in being fronted with God's word again, they realized how far they fell short. They realized the failures that they and the generations before them had committed. And so there was mourning. But in the midst of that, the people are also told to be joyful because God is doing something new. He is renewing his people. And so there's joy. And we were told in verse 10 of chapter 8 that the joy of the Lord is their strength. And so, yes, as the people heard God's word, there was mourning, but there was joy. And that joy led them to obedience. And so they followed the festivals and the celebrations, and there was joy among them as they did that. We see that again at the end of verse 17. Their joy was very great. And now as we enter chapter 9, We're told of another gathering, and this is a somber one as the people gather. And this is a time when the Jewish people, once again, like they did in chapter 8, they recognize their sin. They want to come before God and confess to him. But, But as we'll see, this confession is also intertwined with praise. And so I want to begin by reading just the first five verses of chapter 9. 
we will read the whole of the chapter later, but the, the first five verses help us to set the scene and then understand what comes next. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, if you're joining with us and you don't have a copy of God's Word regularly at home to access, please take one of the, the hardback red pew Bibles, uh, although they're not pews, um, but take one of those with you. That would be our joy to, to gift you with God's Word. Um, let's read these first five verses of chapter 9 of Nehemiah. On the 24th day of the same month, so that's the same month as chapter 8 has taken place. We were told in chapter 8 that's the seventh month of the year. They had spent eight days in celebrating as Ezra read the law. But now in the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God and the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshebniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. We'll, we'll, we'll take a break there. So the, the people here are gathering, and they're gathering in this large assembly, and they have gathered and they've come together very purposefully. The people have prepared for this meeting. They were fasting. They were wearing sackcloth. They had put dust on their heads. And those things, although they might sound strange to us, they were all outward displays of grief or of mourning. And so the people come together already aware of their sin, already aware of their need to repent before God. This God who had given them the law, which had been read to them and, helped, and they had been helped to understand what it said. And in light of their understanding of God's law and the truth of it, they knew how far they had fallen short. They knew they had not been faithful. They knew that they needed him. They needed God, and so they come together to confess. And that's what the second half of verse 2 shows, that they come together, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They confessed their sins. And notice, just like we saw back in chapter 1, they don't just confess their sins, but also of their ancestors. And we said, as we looked at chapter 1, we, we acknowledge that that's not a practice that we adopt very often but I wonder, should we? There's certainly occasions in the Bible when God's people confess the sins of those who have gone before them. This is just one of those occasions. And perhaps we'd do well to take on that example. I mean, we're, we're quick and rightly so to, to commend those who have gone before us. You know, we stand on the shoulder of giants is a phrase we sometimes see. And of course, we want to celebrate and, and give thanks for the foundation of goodness and faithfulness that we enjoy and that we benefit from. But, but I wonder, is the opposite also the case? You see, as, as we see in this chapter and elsewhere throughout God's word, the, the sins of previous generations can affect the present one. The disobedience and the unfaithfulness to God of generations past can cast a shadow over present generations who are seeking to be obedient and faithful. Now, now I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be prescriptive about that, but there's a clear pattern in Scripture and it's an interesting one to acknowledge. The people confess, they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. 
Moving on through this chapter, we see the ceremony continues. And in verse three, they stood where they were and read from the, where they were, where they were, sorry, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. And so just like in chapter eight, we see the people taking half a day to gather in this assembly, half a day to worship and to hear from God and to confess. But what I find striking here is their confession doesn't stand alone. They hear God's word and in light of what they hear, they both confess and worship. And perhaps that sounds like an odd combination for some of us. I mean, how could they recognize their sinfulness, confess their need of God and worship him? Well, the reality is that we, just like they, we we bring our confessions before the holy and righteous and just and powerful God, yes. And in doing so, we should have an appropriate sense of reverent fear as we come before him. But at one and the same time, God is both gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And these are not two sides of God. Where, where we see one or the other. He is completely all of those things all of the time. He is so other than us that our heads can't fathom that. But we don't see a holy and just side of God or a loving, gracious side. No, his justice is loving. His love is holy. And so as I've been reading a book on God's holiness recently, and the author there said it very helpfully, she said, his attributes are never at odds with one another. Nor do they switch places depending on God's mood. They are him. God is holy. He is loving. He is just. He is compassionate. He's not sometimes taking on the characteristic of compassion. No, he is compassionate. He is holy. These are things that he is. And so they cannot be, there's never a time when he isn't those things. And so, yes, we we tremble as we come before the holy God, and rightly so. But as we bring our confessions to God in humility and in submission, we are met by the holiness of God, yes, but also the gracious, loving hand as he lifts us and forgives us and restores us. And in the New Testament, we see how this confession and worship go hand in hand. Just one example in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, we read, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see how there's both confession and worship in those verses? So in if we confess our sins, we see that he is faithful. He is just. He will forgive. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. These are things that cause us to worship. Even as we've come to confess, we then see that he is worthy of our praise. See, coming before God in confession leads us to stay there before him in worship. So as we come before him in confession, we see who he is because we lay ourselves down before the holy and just God. And as we see him as the holy and just God, we also see and are lifted up by his gracious, loving, forgiving kindness. And so confession and worship, they can go hand in hand. They're not opposites of each other. And I think that's what we see here and what we will continue to see through this chapter because the people then turn to worship 
as they've come to confess, they turn to worship. Look at what the Levites say in verses 5 and 6. This loud declaration. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. See, worship is recognizing who God is, and don't these verses show us this? That he is completely other. He is the creator. He is holy. He is majestic. He gives life. He sustains the universe. And this is the God that we worship. This is the God that we come before in confession. This is the same God who forgives because of his great mercy. God, who is rich in love, has made us alive together with Christ. This is the wonderful God who we come before, both in humble, contrite confession, repentance, and worship. May he indeed be exalted above all blessing and praise. Uh, and so, so far in these first six verses anyway, we've seen the, this group of uh, Jews gather together in the city to confess and to worship. And those two things, among many others, are evidence of God's work among his people here in Nehemiah 9. They're renewing their hearts to God. They're reorientating their lives before him. They're recognizing afresh who he is and how they failed him. And so they are also recognizing that he offers forgiveness. So confession and worship. And the rest of the chapter then goes on essentially to take us through a history of Israel. And it's one of these wonderful passages that we see many times throughout Scripture where God's people remember and recount what God has done among them. And it's a fabulous passage. It's a wonderful chapter. And we're going to read it all and then not say very much else about it because it speaks so powerfully on its own. And what we see as we read our way through the rest of this chapter is a celebration of God's faithfulness. It's what Tim was saying earlier. That's what we're going to celebrate. Wonderful and, and, and stand in awe of God's faithfulness. But we see God's faithfulness so much more clearly in this stark comparison to the people's unfaithfulness. And so the Levites, as they continue in this praise that they are saying to God and amongst his people, they show the faithfulness of God, which I think we can see even more clearly in comparison to the, the fickleness and unfaithfulness of men and of God's people. And so this passage bounces between celebrating God's faithfulness and worship and then recognizing the, the number of times that his people feel him. And, and to help I'm not saying that I need to do anything else to, to emphasize that difference, but I find it helpful to go through when I printed out the passage with different colors and, and show the, the praise of God and the, the mess that people make of it. Um, now, rather than turning this into art attack, um, what I thought would be helpful is, that's a blast from the past, isn't it? <laughs> Some people got that. Anyone under 25 was like, what? Um, Rather than turn it into that, to help bring across that comparison, I've, I've invited Hannah and Stephen to, to read the passage. And so Hannah is going to celebrate and have that worshipful voice. Stephen is going to then talk about all the ways that people mess that up. Don't read into who I asked to do those things. <laughs> that was just, um, so Hannah and Stephen are going to come and read the rest of chapter 9 to us. Then I'm going to say a few more things. But please do follow along as we read this wonderful, wonderful passage of God's word. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to pick it up again in verse 7 as we continue to praise. 
You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them the regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and gave commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in the rebellion appointed leaders in order to turn to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, they did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine in the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest of frontiers. They took over the country of of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and in the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possessions of the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possessions of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate till they were full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But, they were oppre- but when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then, then, you, ba- oh, <laughs> then you abandoned them. To the hand of the enemy, their enemies, so that they ruled over them. 
And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time again, time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, he keeps his covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying with great goodness to them in spacious and fertile land you have them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors, so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies, our cattle, as they please. We are in great distress. Thank you both so much. And the chapter ends then with that uh, version 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding covenant, putting it in writing, and our leaders, the Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. And we'll look at that recommitment next week. Isn't this a a wonderful scope through history? It's it's an an incredible kind of vista that is painted for us that we see the the goodness and provision of God, even in the midst of people making a mess of it. And this is a period of history. It started with Abram way back in Genesis, and it's come right up now to Nehemiah's day. And we see in that sweep the, the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God in those very obvious things that they have seen as good, but even in the way that God has delivered them into the hands of their enemies, even in the statutes that he gave them, which did you notice there would be life with those for those who obeyed? God gives so many good things. The people messed it up so much. Yet, as we saw in verse 33, you have remained faithful. Sorry, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully. And one thing that struck me as I went through these verses again is just the proactivity of God, the way in which he steps in, he takes initiative. And I just want to run through those verbs again because I, I get excited about it. Um, but So starting in verse 7, you are the God who chose Abram. You found his heart. You made a covenant with him. You have kept your promise. You saw the suffering of our ancestors. You heard their cry. You sent signs of wonders. You knew how arrogantly that they were being treated by the Egyptians. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. You hurled their pursuers into the depths of the sea. You led them by a cloud and by the pillar of fire. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. You gave them bread from heaven. You brought them water. You told them to go into the land and take possession. 
You did not desert them. You did not abandon them. You guided them. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold. You gave them water. You sustained them. You gave them the kingdoms. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought them into the land. You told their parents that they would inherit it. You subdued the Canaanites. You gave the Canaanites into their hand. So they ate and were full and well-nourished. They reveled in your goodness. You heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers. You heard them from heaven again and delivered them time after time. You warned them in order not to turn back. You, and you said that the person who obeyed them would live by them. You were patient with them through your spirit. You warned them. You did not put an end to them or abandon them. You have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully. <laughs> this is our God. This is who he is. This is not just how he acts. This is his nature to be gracious and compassionate and merciful and just and holy and righteous. And so in view of all of that, what is the response? Well, here is the God that we can obey. Here is a God who is trustworthy beyond all else. All the other gods, small g, who come at us, who we put our trust in, no, none compare to Yahweh. But in light of all of that, in light of that wonderful truth, perhaps we read through this, even perhaps you look at your own life if you're following Jesus, and you think, how can I get it wrong so many times? How did these people get it wrong throughout the generations? How do I get it wrong throughout my weeks and months? Well, well there's a key phrase in the middle of this passage that, that struck me afresh this week. And it's found in verse 17. They refused to listen to remember and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They refused to listen and failed to remember. The ESV states it, that they refused to obey and were not mindful. They refused to listen and did not remember. See, as we've read through this chapter, it might seem so obvious to it that God had been faithful. So God should, of course, be obeyed. How can his people have gotten it so wrong? How could they have missed God's obvious help? How could they have missed his leading? Well, well, they refused to listen and failed to remember. Even to the extent that by the time we get to verse 35, we see that they're in the midst of this wonderful provision of God, but they still don't see it. So in verse 35, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. See, it's possible to enjoy the benefits of God's grace and goodness, enjoy the gifts, but fail to see him and worship him rightly as the giver. And so there's a drift into complacency and there's a drift away from the heart of the Father. So as we look at this, how do we avoid this trap? Well, without, without sounding too simplistic about it, we do the opposite of verse 17. So in verse 17, they refuse to listen and they fail to remember. So the antidote to that is listen and remember. That might sound quite simplistic, but there's a very active choice here that you actively listen. You consciously remember. It's a bit like what we've just been reading through. We take stock of God's action in our lives and we understand the goodness and the grace and the faithfulness that we've seen in him. We listen and remember, we consciously recall and trace out the goodness of God 
and we see his goodness. Maybe you're wondering, well, that's okay for you, Drew. You've got a very comfortable life and everything's okay and grand. No, well, then look beyond yourself. See his goodness in his word. See his faithfulness, just like the Israelites did. They looked back over God's whole entire activity in the world. And we can do exactly the same because he's given us his word. And when we do, we will see him as faithful because that is who he is. He can't be anything else. He is faithful. And so if look back over your life, look back over his word, and you will see the wonder and the praise that he deserves when we tune in to listen and remember. See, when we turn our hearts, hearts to, to appreciate his good gifts, and, and many of us do, many of us, not all of us, many of us do enjoy relative comfort, relative prosperity. I, I actually I, I see myself a bit in that verse 35. You know, that we see the good things that God has given, but we fail to recognize him as the one who gave it. And so we need to take active choices to remember and to listen. And and that's one of the many reasons why Christian community is such a gift. Because at least once a week, if not more, we we are encouraged, if not commanded, to gather together. And so out of the the humdrum and the daily busyness of life, we can come and intentionally praise our God, intentionally stop and look back at what he's been doing in our lives and in our community. And we can listen and remember. Now, I realize it is easy to get caught up in the day-to-day life. But but what what I think I see here is is not a removal from day-to-day life, but a conscious choice in the day-to-day life to see God's hand at work, to listen to his word regularly, to remember his goodness and his faithfulness and to be aware of that and attentive to that in our everyday. So listen to him, remember his goodness and do that as you go about your everyday, as you deal with your work colleagues, as you manage your finances, as you interact with your neighbors around you, as we pray for our needy world, as we seek his leading for your future, as we worry about exams and where our life might be heading, let's listen to God. Listen to his voice. Remember his faithfulness, which will always be on show. And allow that faithfulness to fuel our praise in the present and our hope for the future. And that's what sweeps of history like this show us. That's what individual choices like this, to listen and remember. When we do, we see his faithfulness. God is faithful. We will see it in our lives. And certainly in his word. And when we see his faithfulness, it fuels our praise in the present and our hope for the future. Because we know that we're not living this kingdom. We're not building a kingdom of our own. No, he has welcomed us through the blood of his son into his family so that he will have his way in our lives. And so we listen and we remember. And how fitting it is for us then to turn our attention at the end of our service to communion. This is a meal that encourages us to do just this, to listen and to remember, to once again listen to what God has done through Christ for us. How Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for sin. That sin which, which, of course, we need to come before the holy God and confess. And we can do so and we can enter into that most holy place by the blood of Christ. So Jesus has made a way for those sins to be dealt with because he has taken upon himself the penalty that you and I are due to pay. But no, he has taken that penalty so that when we confess, 
then we can be lifted up by the gracious and merciful and forgiving hand of God and welcomed into his family. And so we listen to what God has done to us, done for us through Christ as Christ died in our place. And we remember his sacrifice. Those are the words that Jesus told his disciples to do. That when you take of this bread, when you take of this cup, remember me. And so as we go into today and the rest of this week, for those of us who love and follow Jesus, let's listen to him and let's remember his activity in our lives. And in doing so, allow that to fuel our praise in the present, whatever our present is and however that difficult that might be. And let it bolster and secure our understanding of our hope for our future. Let's be people who listen and remember because God is active. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he is still at work among us and in us. Let's be mindful of him. Let's be attentive to him. And let's come before him now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that that you are indeed faithful, that you move and work in ways that are far beyond our understanding. Sometimes, God, you move in ways and lead us into places that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, places of difficulty or testing or trial or suffering. Yet, God, when you lead us into them, we can trust that you are achieving something for your glory. You are still faithful in those moments of difficulty and trial. And so if we find ourselves in those moments this morning, Father, we we cling to you, knowing that you are faithful, knowing that your purposes are good, even if we don't see it yet. And ultimately, Father, we know that by, by putting our trust in you and by uh, by putting all of our hope and all of our eternal security in your promises, then we can know that the future is secure, whatever the present may bring. Lord, I pray that you would help us to listen and remember, not just as a, as a clever anecdote, but Father, that this would become a daily discipline in our lives, that we would listen to your word, we would hear what you are saying to us, And we would remember, consciously remember your faithfulness, consciously remember your activity, consciously remember your words and your commands upon our lives. And then, Father, we would live in the freedom and the joy that you come to give us. Thank you, Father, for this passage of your word. Thank you that it has caused us to stop and remember. And thank you, Father, that as we do, we will always see your faithfulness because that is who you are. And so we praise you. And primarily this morning, we praise you, Father, for the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice in our place as he atones for our sin, as he dies the death that sinners ought to pay. And because of that, Father, we can be welcomed into your presence because of his sinless death where he took our sin upon himself. He didn't die for his own sin. Then, Father, we can know his righteousness upon ourselves so that when you look at us when we come to you in repentance and faith trusting alone in jesus christ for our salvation you see christ's righteousness you welcome us with your embrace for now and for this life and for all of eternity and so we praise you help us god as we now listen and remember this meal help us to be mindful indeed of christ's sacrifice for us and help us to celebrate it rightly as we do for these things in these 
And for all of these things, we pray, Father, that your will would be done, that your name would be extended, your kingdom would come more on this planet. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.